The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, parenting, bad poetry, good listeners, more parenting, good poetry, madness and matricide, a parenting manifesto, and some wonderful parenting in difficult circumstances. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. A little under the weather, but glad, as always, that you are here with me today. Is that that sound like Mr. Rogers? Is that Mr. Rogers of me? Well, I've been called that before. The Mr. Rogers of literature. Me? <laughs> I love Mr. Rogers. He was part of my childhood and a good defender of PBS at a time when I truly benefited from PBS, and I did. But hey, I feel a little too dark to be Fred Rogers. A little too much evil lurks within, especially in October. Another thing I get about me, you sound nice. Are you Canadian? <laughs> LOL. Although I do love Canada, as my recent trip to Montreal confirmed, I thought... This is so great. Why don't I come here all the time? But then again, I love Toronto, too, and I love Vancouver. Three for three, Canada. And Mike recently went to Banff, a place I have not been to but need to go to soon, or at least someday. In the meantime, I'm here in the basement with the crickets and the spiders, although I do my best to escort them back into the outdoors. No squashing in this studio. Only gentle cradling sprints up the stairs and deposits on the back porch. Farewell, little one. Maybe it's the same creatures coming back in for a repeat visit. Maybe they like that thrill ride I give them. Maybe these little guys are my pets without me even realizing it. Or maybe I'm theirs, now that I think of it. They have trained me well. Okay, so... Today we have a bit of a potpourri. I'm going to talk to Carolyn Hayes, who has written a wonderful book about parenting. Carolyn is raising a transgender child and began this journey in a red state, which for those of you who are abroad, is America's shorthand for conservative state. States that have lately been pretty anti-trans, if that's the right word. Politicians have been using these issues to divide us all. It's yet another cultural wedge issue. She's written a book about the experience, which is in the form of a letter to her daughter. It is hard to read this book and not have your heart go out to this family. Is this literature? Well, yes, I think so. For one thing, it's the written word. It's in the form of a nonfiction narrative using some fictional techniques. So creative nonfiction, which is in our literary ballpark. But more salient for me is that it's about 
empathy, which is what literature is all about or should be. It's a book that you read and put yourself in the shoes of the child and or the parent. It made me think a lot about parenting, which is definitely on my mind now that I've dropped off my eldest child at college. Wow, what an experience that has been, though I'm excited for him. It's a devastating day full of pride and blissful joy and unmitigated excitement, but the end of an era and a crushing day as well. When I was prepping for Carolyn Hayes, I got on a roll and wrote out a parenting manifesto, which seemed a bit appropriate to share with you. Why not? Some of you might find it helpful, or you might agree or disagree, might spur some thoughts. And so you don't feel robbed by not having some true down-the-middle history of literature, some meat and potatoes of literature. I'm going to tell the story of another parent, this one a horror story involving madness and murder, and that is the story of Charles and Mary Lamb. You may have heard of them for their version of Shakespeare's tales. Charles Lamb was also a friend of romantic poets like Wordsworth and Coleridge. We'll hear how misfortune befell their family. It's a great tragedy. But first, I wanted to share this from a listener. This was a note that I received from Maria, who writes, Hello, I would like to express my deep gratitude for your podcasts. It is very interesting to listen to them. We are students from Ukraine. We want to translate your podcast into Ukrainian and present it to our group. I really liked your podcast about bad poetry, but would like to know if there is a script from it. So it would be much easier for us to translate. Smiley face. Please tell me where you can find it. We will be very grateful for the feedback. Thanks and have a nice day. Exclamation mark. Well, Maria, thank you for writing to me. My goodness, I almost don't know what to say. Ukrainian students persevering in the midst of historical turmoil and tragedy. That's actually a good time for literature, maybe the best. Many authors have been there before and have lived through such troubles and have offered their thoughts on how to be human and how to endure. So, getting to the point. I usually do not have a transcript of these ramblings of mine, unfortunately, but in this case I had some notes that I have been able to pass along. Maria, I hope they were useful, and good luck making good sense out of bad poetry. As people who haven't heard that episode often complain about it, based on the title, let me just say, I start with the confession that I was and am a bad poet, and a defender of bad poetry to some extent. Let the brickbats rain down from the skies. Good luck to you and your fellow students, Maria, and please take care. Speaking of good luck, that is not what we have today for our first topic. A lot of bad luck in this first part. Charles and Mary Lamb, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Charles Lamb, poet and critic and essayist, has been described as, quote, the most lovable figure in English literature, end quote. He was the son of a lawyer's assistant, living above the lawyer's practice until his father passed away and the family was forced to move. As a child, he was sent to various schools, including some known for their violent and brutish instructors, common theme in English history, but Charles was amiable enough and seems to have avoided the wrath of the headmaster. He also made friends, including his fellow student Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Although Coleridge and some of the other boys headed to Cambridge afterwards, this was not to be Charles Lamb's fate. Economic circumstances sent him into the workplace instead. He spoke with a stutter, which took him out of a career in the church, and instead he found a job in the offices of the East India Company where he worked for 25 years until receiving a retirement with pension. He also wrote poems on the side, and he had periodic mental breakdowns. Coleridge, he wrote in 1796, I know not what suffering scenes you have gone through at Bristol. My life has been somewhat diversified of late. The six weeks that finished last year and began this, your very humble servant spent very agreeably in a madhouse at Hoxton. I am got somewhat rational now, and don't bite anyone. But mad I was, and many a vagary my imagination played with me, enough to make a volume, if all told. My sonnets I have extended to the number of nine since I saw you, and will some day communicate to you. End quote. Madness seems to have run in the family, and also hardship and strain. Let's jump ahead to Charles's later years, when he and his sister Mary became famous for their work, Tales from Shakespeare. Tales from Shakespeare is a very successful children's book, using as much of Shakespeare's language as possible and keeping much of the plot from the stories, too, although it does remove some subplots and some of the more risque elements. They skipped the histories and the Roman plays, focusing instead on the plots and stories from 20 comedies and tragedies. The two wrote the preface together. The book has never been out of print. Mary was about 10 years older than Charles and taught him how to read. The two were not growing up in a totally happy household. Once again, this is an era where many of the children die in infancy or shortly thereafter. The Lambs had seven children, and only three of them, Charles, Mary, and their brother John, survived to adulthood. Charles and Mary made a pact that they would not marry, and that they would live together and be loyal to one another, looking after each other. And in fact, this is what they did until Charles's death 
at the age of 59. Mary wrote poetry as well, not as highly regarded as Charles's, but then again, the tales from Shakespeare has eclipsed everything else Charles wrote, including both his poetry and the essays that Charles was moderately famous for during his time. They were in a literary circle that included luminaries like Robert Southey, William Hazlitt, Lee Hunt, William Godwin, Coleridge, and Wordsworth. Charles provides a kind of opposed view to Wordsworth in at least one sense. Lamb was a Londoner who didn't have much use for the kinds of trips to nature that Wordsworth adored. I don't much care, he once said, if I never see a mountain in my life. He explained further, My attachments are all local, purely local. The rooms where I was born, the furniture which has been before my eyes all my life, a bookcase which has followed me about, old chairs, old tables, streets, squares where I have sunned myself, my old school, these are my mistresses. Have I not enough without your mountains? And so... Charles and Mary Lamb lived this relatively quiet, fairly domestic life, telling Shakespeare tales for children, and Mary wrote essays on needlework and the importance of sewing as a profession available to ladies. And the two of them even adopted a 14-year-old girl and helped her along until she found work as a governess at the age of 19. But that's not the entire story. Mary suffered from bouts of mental illness more severe than Charles's. At one point, Mary looked back on her life and said, I have for the most part been a good and faithful daughter. The phrase, for the most part, is doing a lot of work there, because in fact, just one month before, during a fit of madness amplified by extreme strain, Mary Lamb had murdered her mother. This was the scene. Mary, who was at times extremely lucid and clear and at other times suffered from delusions, was taking care of the Lamb household. Her mother suffered from a painful, debilitating condition that was probably arthritis. She was completely dependent on Mary. Their father had had a stroke and soon became senile and in need of constant care. Charles was in and out of the mental institution, as we talked about earlier, and their other brother John was gone. A sickly aunt was also living with the family. Mary was working full-time as a seamstress, in addition to taking care of everyone, with an apprentice to help her with the profession of the needlework. One night, what was later called her derangement flared up, and the stress of the household overwhelmed her. While preparing dinner, she became angry at her apprentice, and shoved her out of the way. Her mother shouted at her. Something in Mary snapped, and she took the knife she was using for cooking and stabbed her mother several times in the chest. Charles ran into the room at that point and pulled the knife from Mary's hand. The coroner returned a verdict of lunacy. Mary was sent to a mental hospital. While she recovered and spent many of her remaining years in and out of the hospital living with Charles when she was out, the two of them got used to her illness returning on something like an annual basis. And by the time Charles died, she was full gone and spent the rest of her years in a facility for the mentally ill. They were, said Charles, quote, determined to take what snatches of pleasure we can between the acts of our distressful drama like those, as it has been finally said, who have just escaped from earthquake or shipwreck, find a thing for grateful tears in the mere sitting quiet at home, under the well, till the end of days. End quote. Snatches of pleasure. 
One day, Mary made a pun, and Charles noted that it was the first joke she had ever made in her life. She was 50 years old at the time. And yet, their literary friends valued her. She's a thoroughly reasonable woman, said Hazlitt. Dorothy Wordsworth in particular considered Mary a close friend. Others remarked on her gentle wisdom and the sweetness of her disposition. All viewed it as a tragedy when she ultimately lost control of her faculties after Charles's death. It's a hard life or lives. There's some beauty in the way the two cared for one another and the friendships that they made and sustained throughout their lives and the work that they managed to accomplish. But the beauty is clouded with this enormous shadow of guilt in Mary's past and the suffering that accompanied the two of them forever. When they traveled together, they always took a straitjacket with them, for Mary's outbursts of madness seemed to coincide especially with moments of pleasure. Charles Lamb acknowledged that part of his taste for London was the anonymity that a city can provide. Country gossip was at times too much to bear. That's the story of the Lambs. In addition to everything else, Charles was also a heavy drinker and addicted to tobacco. His genial disposition and the sorrows of his life combined to give his poems a strong feeling of melancholy. That's how I read them, a survivor's melancholy. Here's one I like called The Old Familiar Faces. The Old Familiar Faces by Charles Lamb. I have had playmates, I have had companions, in my days of childhood, in my joyful school days. All, all are gone, the old familiar faces. I have been laughing, I have been carousing, drinking late, sitting late with my bosom cronies. All, all are gone, the old familiar faces. I loved a love once, fairest among women, closed are her doors on me, I must not see her. All, all are gone, the old familiar faces. I have a friend, a kinder friend has no man. Like an ingrate, I left my friend abruptly, left him to muse on the old familiar faces. Ghost-like, I paced round the haunts of my childhood. Earth seemed a desert I was bound to traverse, seeking to find the old familiar faces. Friend of my bosom, thou more than a brother, why wert not thou born in my father's dwelling? So might we talk of the old familiar faces. How some they have died, and some they have left me, and some are taken from me, all are departed. All, all are gone, the old familiar faces. Mm. That's Charles Lamb. Someday we all get to that point where we look back. We don't have to be old to do it, but when we are old... There's almost nothing else left for us to do. But think about those old, familiar faces. Okay, let's take our last break and then return with another story of parenting. First, a little about my parents' manifesto that I scribbled out as I prepared for this interview. And then Carolyn Hayes, who has written about her experience raising a transgender child in a red state.
Okay, here we go. Not that you asked, but I'm a parent who has just dropped off his oldest child at college. A big, big chapter in my life has ended with new ones beginning. That's the nature of chapters, right? There's another one that starts right on the next page. But experience has given me some room to reflect. And as I prepared for this conversation with Carolyn Hayes, I was doing a lot of reflection. There's something so essential about the parent-child relationship. It's the engine, the battery, that whatever your metaphor you want to use for how society, it's society in a microcosm, the family. When should others interfere with that relationship? We step in when we see abuse. We do it ourselves or we ask the state to do it for us. But that's physical harm. That's Adrian Peterson beating his children with a tree branch. The state steps in. It's unacceptable in our society. Carolyn Hayes was in a different position. And the position that she was in has become a nightmarish scenario for many children and parents. The state interfering for reasons of prejudice and narrow beliefs. The state stepping in and telling parents how to parent. The politicians inserting their judgment over the judgment of experts and medical professionals claim for themselves a kind of moral high ground that is not well-founded in reality or facts. They mock the idea of empathy and accuse well-intentioned people with love in their hearts of being sinister and possessed by some crazed agendas. Carolyn Hayes has bravely written a book to tell her story. Frankly, it brought tears to my eyes, and I found myself jotting down some thoughts on parenting and letting parents parent that ended up being a bit like a manifesto. So let's do this. Actually, let's do this. Let's have Carolyn join us, and she and I will talk about her book and her experience, and then I'll give my manifesto. You can skip that part if you want, or you can stick around for it, but don't go anywhere just yet, because Carolyn Hayes is up next. Okay, joining me now is Carolyn Hayes, a critically acclaimed and best-selling author whose new book, A Girlhood, Letter to My Transgender Daughter, has been described as, quote, an intimate, expansive, big-hearted, breathtaking, fierce, lyrical love letter, written from Hayes to her now teenage daughter, who was assigned male at birth. Carolyn Hayes, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi, thank you for having me. So I'm probably like many readers or listeners who are coming at this from the point of view of a parent who has lived on this planet for decades and has been unfortunately ignorant on transgender issues for most of that time. So I apologize in advance if any of my questions betray a lack of familiarity or understanding. Oh I, yeah, uh, I was in your I was in your shoes when this started with when all this started, so I, I completely understand. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no worries. I'm here to learn. Okay, so let's start with the moment when you, as the mother of four, who thought you had parenting more or less figured out, had an exchange with your youngest child, who was then three years old. What happened? Uh, well, I mean, we had seen certainly she had been persistent, consistent, and acute, as they say, kind of in the, you know, when we eventually were talking to people who were specialists. Um, so there were a lot of behavior. She was, she was very much saying that she was a girl. Mm. She was arguing with, with other kids in her class. <laughs> and she had said a couple of times when she'd hear me talking on the phone to my mother saying he, she would correct me. Yeah. There And there was just a lot of, and, and her behavior and her play and all of that was kind of 
typically feminine, which was fine with us. I mean, we really were were thinking, okay, well, maybe we're raising someone who will be a strong gay man one day, you know, or we were open to like the bigger, broader spectrum of in-betweenness. But then it came to a head one night. I was actually at my parents' house. We're a very close family. We're a big family. I come from kind of a largest family. and, And so we were, I was putting her to bed one night. And uh, this was when we were clearly used, still using male pronouns. And uh, and she said, when you say I'm beautiful, say she. Mm. Say she is beautiful. And there is something about beauty and how it twins with identity. We want to be seen as beautiful, but we want to be seen as beautiful for ourselves as we see ourselves. Or it's not really being seen as beautiful. It's right. not really being seen at all. You know, we're not being seen. So. This to me, and especially as somebody who I'm Catholic, and I just felt like this, this felt like such a, a moment of, uh, that was more about the soul than it was about anything else. Mm. And it felt very kind of divine in a way. So it really, that was the moment when I said, okay, I cannot, I cannot mess with this kid's sense of who they are and what makes them beautiful. Mm. So that was really the beginning of really thinking about how to how to transition how to change pronouns and when to do that and all of that so right it almost is like parents who will say to a child uh, who might be overweight to say something like i know you're beautiful on the inside or something like that and and the child thinking why can't you see who i am and why is your conception of me different from my own right yeah. And we, we do say that to kids. You know, we do say yeah. to kids, like, you're beautiful. On the inside. What's on the inside is what matters. Except to trans kids, we, we a lot of people say what's on the inside doesn't matter. Right, you know, right. uh, what was of you at birth by a doctor, you know, just skimming past the scene. <laughs> that's what's going to define you for the rest of your life, as opposed to all the medical and scientific and all the complexities that we now understand about the brain and what happens in utero and And what I think is like really dynamic, gorgeous, beautiful architecture of who we are, all of that just kind of gets simplified into two squares. It's an M square or an F square. Pick one. Yeah, right. Okay, so you weren't the type of parents who were there saying, oh, we could never imagine seeing our son wearing pink or, or that kind of thing. You were... You were open to different ideas, but I would imagine that you were doing a lot of Googling or trying to figure out exactly uh, what you could learn and, and what the what was known about this issue. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, my husband was a D1 college athlete. I, you know, I'm feminine myself, so we're a straight couple when our other yeah. kids were and pretty much fell within gender norms. And my older daughter's a tree climber, but, <laughs> you know, yeah. we weren't, you know, hippy dippy kind of far left. And I'm raised Catholic, you know. Yeah. You were living in a, you were living in a Southern state. Yeah. We were living in the deep South and actually we kind of enjoyed living in the deep South. I mean, we were considered left leaning in the deep South, but, <laughs> you know, maybe not in, in New England somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so we had a lot to learn. I did start with Googling, of course. And, you know, I came across some really great, there was a really great NPR story that at the time that was helpful about two different families grappling with kids who were expressing their gender identity differently. And then, I mean, I really did some deep diving and I I love research and I love, uh, you know, that kind of 
interesting. So I really, over the years in particular, have, have certainly, it's changed, you know, this, this journey has changed the way I see everything. So, mm. yeah. So uh, that journey has been incredible. But yeah, and then we were pretty quickly on the phone with experts. You know what I mean? We, we wanted to figure out what the best practices were. But all of that said, we weren't ready to use the word transgender. You know, oh, <laughs> it, right. it took us a long time to, because at that point, the idea that a child could be trans and that, and that actually most people are going through understanding their gender through the childhood development. Any pediatrician could probably tell you this is, you know, how childhood development works when a kid understands their gender. So our daughter was completely normal. She was going through all of those steps. She was just doing it for the girl gender. Right. <laughs> it took us a while to figure all that out. Yeah. So is it because this was 2011 and, and there just wasn't as much information and, and literature and, and so on out there? Or was there, uh, did you have a feeling that, well, this is something that gets decided when the person is 18 and old enough to make that decision? Or why were you not yet ready to use that term? Uh, I was transphobic. Mm. Um, I remember where I was standing in the phone call I had when I first heard that word. Um, it was with a lawyer in New York who worked for trans people. And he used that word. And I was, oh, that's that feeling I have in me. And I really didn't, even just pretty recently since the, the documentary film Disclosure came out and really shows how media has inundated me with, mm. you know, kind of transphobic films, television shows, representations of trans people. I really didn't even understand how much I'd been fed a negative, really, you know, pretty awful stereotypes of trans people. Yeah. So it took me that. Yeah, that took me a while. Yeah. As you were reaching out and looking at the research and so on, you have in your books, uh, you present some science about the brain and, and you yourself seem to have had some theories about things that happened during your pregnancy and so on. But I, I still was kind of left with the feeling that we know a little, but not nearly enough about these issues in terms of the science. Is that kind of your feeling of the state of research that we have a long way to go? Yeah, we do. We have a long way to go. I mean, I mean if you just look at it, Maybe one of the, the best ways to think about it is like if a child has a, a twin and it is trans and they have a fraternal twin, they ha that fraternal twin has a little bit of a more chance, I think, than the regular. But but if they have an identical twin, they have a, the, the identical twin has a much greater trans mm. chance of being trans. So there are genetic things going on here and there are different the, the way the brain forms in trans people, a trans woman and a cis woman, someone who's not trans are more similar than if that person were not identifying as trans. So we're looking at all of these different things and the hormone washes and there are lots of theories and so, I mean, I'm, I love the rabbit hole. It's a great rabbit hole. It's, it's, it's really interesting to me scientifically, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yeah, right, right. Um, because being trans does no harm. I mean, who cares whether I had a, a girl at birth or whether I had a boy at birth? No one cares. And so why would anyone care at any point in my kid's development or life? I, I don't get why anybody would care. Um, so it just does no harm. She's, she's great. She's thriving. She's concerned about math class this year. That's her life. <laughs> right, right. 
this is where I guess it, it gets into the politics. It just has become such a dominating issue in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And it, maybe this is a good thing that it's becoming an issue that people are no longer just dismissing, as you were saying before, where in popular culture it would be, oh, those are villains, you know, people who are choosing to be a particular way to make a, a certain point or something. But it does feel like there's such a, a political movement to make laws around transgender people. And it, you described it, I guess, it started with a knock on your door. Maybe that's the place to begin. And what that told you about the world that you were living in and what things are like in America today. Yeah. So our daughter just transitioned quietly and we let people know and she started using um, female pronouns or we started using female pronouns for her. Um, she got to pick her own clothes and started going by a nickname and that was it. Like, And the, the school was so relieved and happy because <laughs> they knew what to do with her and there's no mm. more arguing <laughs> yeah, but yeah. lines she set in. So it, you know, it was really positive. Our families were supportive. The people around us were generally supportive. And then you know, about within a month, we got a knock at our door and that changed our lives forever. So it was someone from the Department of Children and Families and there had been an anonymous call accusing us of child abuse, uh, basically for the language of the call was interesting because it was somebody who didn't even know to use the word transgender. And they used the word homosexual, like we were forcing our child to be a homosexual. So that whole investigation, it's an investigation into our family, um, escalated pretty quickly because we got with lawyers and asked what, what should we do, be do and, and specialists and all kinds of, we asked as, for as much help as possible. Um, and we found out that in this state with a lot of Republican appointed judges, if this escalated and, you know, went to court, we could lose custody. So that was terrifying and then felt like we got through that. Luckily, the caseworker saw a family that was very loving and doing the best they could. Mm. But and, and we moved. We changed our lives completely. Every, you know, we left that state because uh, yeah. we couldn't be guaranteed that this wouldn't happen again. And then, you know, you move forward and this spring, the, the governor of Texas signed into law that everyone in his state uh, who's a parent who supports their transgender child should be investigated for child abuse. And he signed that. It's since been challenged, but I don't know how many million, are there 30 million people who have, I think there's about 28, 29 million people who live in Texas, mm. like larger than a lot of countries. Yeah. So if we heard of a country that was suddenly investigating and to me, like terrorizing these families, threatening to to take their children from them. It's pretty terrifying that, that what happened to us is, is now some, what somebody thinks is good policy. It's pretty terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a fate worse than death uh, to, to think, because what would happen if the child was taken away? Just imagining the misery that would ensue. Losing a child is hard enough, but knowing that the child was going to be with people who were um, required by the state to... I don't know, deprogram or hide or uh, it just would be it brings tears to my eyes thinking about it from a parent's point of view. Yeah, it was um, certainly the greatest threat you can make to a parent. Yeah. And there's a history of it, too. But yeah. Did you get the sense that what they were telling you was, let's say you had a, a child who was left handed. Were they telling you, you parents are at fault? Or you obviously made them left-handed, they were right-handed, and you're, you're sinister, and you're making them left-handed, or, or that 
oh, you have a left-handed child, but you didn't do enough to convert them to a right-handed child, and you're just letting it go. And the abuse is that you're letting them do whatever they want, and, and obviously they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Yeah, well, the, the metaphor that I was using more is that I thought of is, well, what if I had a child who had, uh, you know, an illness, and that illness meant that they had to be in a wheelchair sometimes, or that they had, yeah. they were bruised, they bruised easily, you know what I mean? Or, you know, that, yeah, so somebody would make that call, but then you would say, okay, well, we're doing this. And we're actually, we're not <laughs> leaving our child, you know, yeah. our child is going through leukemia treatment. So we're actually supporting our child through their specific needs, whatever those specific needs are. And we're being seen in this way. And then I found out that these calls, they, they were already happening to a number of families that were supporting their trans kids. And I, when we went to like conference of parents and met other parents and workshops, it was not unusual that other parents said that they'd been through the same thing, that it was the nurse at the school made the call, you know, a grandparent or somebody in a legal battle for the kid custody. I mean, custody cases get really heated, but and then I found out that it does happen to families with kids with different kinds of problems, you know, mm. they do get this call as well. So, uh, yeah, but it, it, the, the leap there to it becoming a law, someone saying we have to get, investigate all of these parents, to me is really just rallying the base and has a much more, it's much more politically motivated than it is really caring for children and loving homes who are you know, going to doctors and pediatricians and who are getting good grades and <laughs> you know, doing well and thriving by all measures to come in and accuse a family. To me, there's it's something a little more sinister when it comes from a politician, because I really feel like everybody brewing up things around trans kids playing sports and, or, you know, those kinds of things, they're, they're really trying to make people see a new villain. It's fear mongering. It's, yeah, just right. trying to make a group of people scared um, just to drum up some ugliness and that you, then you get to ride in and I'm going to save you from uh, this trans child who wants to play field hockey. I'm here to save you. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what that's about, but um, it's certainly not about meeting with parents of trans kids and sitting down and talking to them and knowing them as human beings. Yeah, it's the the pattern that we see with any sort of other group where it's like a politician will draw a circle and say, we're the ones who are included. And there's motivational juice to be had in saying, we're going to keep you in and we'll keep them out. Yeah. And that's why, even though I'm really scared about the book being out, you know, and it kind of re-triggers some of the stuff we, we um, dealt with in the past, it feels important because I, I want people to read the book and be able to say, well, this is undeniably, these are human beings and they're, they're a regular family and they're doing their thing and we like them, you know, I mean, they're normal. We, we would, we would be happy to have them in our church. We'd be happy to have them at a potluck, you know, um, and to get to know people who are raising trans kids. And it's just such a small, small group of people we really aren't very many of us. And because it's such an ugly climate, so many of us are not out. Right. So it's really hard to, to, to kind of do, do that work. Yeah. It's, and that's why I wanted to talk to you, even though it's not, it's not exactly the history of literature, but I just, I know this is such an important issue and I just wanted to give it as much exposure as I could and kind of learn as much as I can about it. But speaking of literature, I am interested in what you found uh, in the literature of the past and popular culture and, and so on, where, these people were villains or, you know, enough that you then looking back kind of realized how 
how much you had been exposed to negative stereotypes. And I'm wondering, after you started to become aware of these issues, were you were you encountering in, uh, I mean, I had the experience of returning to Disney movies like Peter Pan or something and then saying, what? I can't believe that's in there. You know, what <laughs> What were they thinking there? And, and realizing that I didn't really want to show it to my kids because of all of the Native American stereotypes and the ugliness of it and, and so on. Were you finding that that it was kind of the the canon or the the list of children's books that you had in mind for your older children that suddenly you were seeing things in there that were uh you would have preferred to avoid or where was where were the negative stereotypes coming from yeah so once you you see them you kind of can't stop seeing them yeah. um i mean ace ventura you know is horrific um on this um but going back to psycho um uh, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah there's there's just a lot of them um south park is particularly bad hmm. Um, I, I write about in the book, was sitting down, knowing that my older kids loved Rat Race and <laughs> sitting down and watching just the trailer. And there are two very weird and nonsensical. Um, one is a gender joke and then one is uh, uh, with Cuba Gooding Jr. And then one is, uh, you know, kind of a, a joke about um, someone who's dressed as Lucy, but Lucille Ball, you know. Um, a man, and I, I assume this person is is you know in drag, but it's still this very very hard anti-trans joke at the heart of it. Um, and yeah, so we just watched that. It was what you know trailers often like a minute and thirty seconds, right? And I'm like, whoa, what is going on? What what just happened? <laughs> I will say though that looking back at Nickelodeon shows and Disney shows, it's really interesting. They, that they were helpful in some ways, uh, uh, not having to do with this, but and that so many of them are about having a secret self mm. and having mm-hmm. a part of yourself that is true, your true identity, and then what you show to the world, and then navigating that best friend. When do you tell that best friend? Under what circumstances? Why do you tell them? And then how that person reacts. So um, there's so many like undercover shows and uh, you know Hannah Montana and so many different shows that are about you know, having that superpower or that secret life that's really exciting. And so those shows weirdly were positive for my daughter trying to navigate this and really seeing it as something about herself that's private, not a secret. You know, we kind of try to talk about secret Mm -hmm. and private, which but, you know, that that when she does trust someone and she has that connection and likes someone and feels that she can let them know this part of who she is, this part of her journey. So there were some, there were, there were some surprisingly good metaphors out there in some of the kids shows. Right. Right. Because I mean, I believe in literature so much as expanding our empathy. I would think that there would be moments where just being able to accept others and their differences and having a mistaken first impression of people. I would think that would run through a lot of the books that even if they aren't, uh, touching on these issues in particular. Yeah, I, I would say that there were a lot of there are a lot of good ones out there like that. Mm-hmm. Were your older children, where were they on this? Were they were they basically alongside you or or ahead of you or behind you? I would say that they were great in that 
for one thing, they're a good bit older. So the oldest uh-huh. is 12 years older than the baby, then 10 years older than the baby, then seven years older than the baby, who's no longer a baby. There wasn't that, uh, she's getting all this attention. What's it all about her? You know, it, it was really much, they all saw her as the baby of the family. Uh-huh. And when we had to rally and they had to give up really important parts of their lives and who they were in it, where we lived. They all had things that they were into and excelling, you know, relationships, friendships, uh, girlfriends here and there, you know, that kind of thing. So they had to give up a lot. And I think that they, they, they all were frustrated in some way, but they also knew that what was going on for their little sister, this rallying, this intense protective, like they were fierce. They stood up for her and I think the message was, look, we do this for each other. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and if you're ever in need, we will do this for you. This is how we do this family. <laughs> yeah. We circle the wax and we make sure that we're safe. And so in some ways, I think it, you know, it was definitely bonding for us as a family that we all made this choice together and decided, no, we're out. And we're going to find a place that's better and safer and where we can really feel stronger as a unit um, and be, be that unit. I think that, and, but in terms of understanding it, uh, kids always get it, you know. <laughs> yeah, kids right. get it before adults get it. <laughs> right. And uh, so that part of it, you know, where my hope is, is really in their generation, yeah. you know, who are just saying, what is the fuss about? What are you, why are you guys going so nuts? What is this moral panic? What is this, you know, why are you screaming and yelling and having hysteric fits? Everything is fine. <laughs> you just hang out with the person and everything's good. So I think that, yeah, I have a lot of hope there. Well, we did see that hopefully we're not, I'm not saying this and and the backlash is yet to come, but it does seem like we saw that with same-sex marriage and and so on, that it was a, a new generation of people who basically just said, let's just stop this, uh, this homophobia, because we all know people and we are all comfortable with it. And, and it's time to just end all of this misery. And, you know, we're not being our best selves here. And we're not letting people be their best selves. Yeah. And I do think about the role of churches and the role of political parties and Mm -hmm. things like that, that kind of step in between have historically stepped in between the relationship, the natural love for a parent and their child. Because yeah. I think that the parent and the child, they, if there weren't for these structures that said, oh, by the way, you can't do this, this is horrible, or instilling fear in the parent, then these would be loving relationships and healthy relationships. And I think once, also like once parents started saying, why does my kid, just because it's a same-sex marriage, why aren't you getting my kid a toaster oven? <laughs> like, mm, like, yeah. They deserve just as much. And it has to come from the parents, too. We have that role to say, to stand up and say, no, no one gets in between my love and my acceptance for my child. And I'm not going to let a church do that or a religion do that or political party or whatever. The new tactic of fear, though, that's in this book, it's real because you will tell a child what they need to do in order to survive in order to have a child not taken from you. And so when you raise the stakes like that and you Mm. say, we'll take our child from you if you let them proceed this way, that that's a real threat. And, and a a parent will certainly tell a kid, you can't do this. You can't do that. You have to hide. You have to da da da. And all of that fear so quickly translates to the child into shame. And so these policies really end up, you know, what happened to us, it didn't just happen to us, you know, it, it happened to our family, but 
when it happens to other families, it tears them apart. And it also tears communities apart yeah. because it really says, are you okay with this? This person being family being terrorized in this way, it's threatened to have their child take. Are you okay with this? Are you okay? And, and so then once you get the community kind of all, it's really, really divisive. Um, and then it sends this message, a real chilling effect to any other child and of any other parent who loves and supports that child. It, it terrifies them and sends this message to shut it down. And that can cause just generational harm. And that's what I would like us not to go back to. Why is it so hard for people to accept this? Is, is it just they're, they, they've been poisoned by the culture or their, their leaders? Or are they just, why are they so unwilling to be open to this idea that your family was a loving family and, and wasn't doing anything wrong? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I also yeah. want to kind of stick up for parents who take a while to come around, right. too. Right, Because I've worked with those parents in workshops, and they a lot of it is imagination. They're, they have imagined a future for their child. Mm -hmm. They have imagined a child in front of them. Sometimes they're caught up on, this child reflects me. And so, if you know, my husband had to say out loud, I'm scared that people are going to think that this is my weakness manifest. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah kid because I'm not man enough, you know? And I was like, really? You just said that out loud. How's that feel? Does that feel rational? <laughs> you <Yeah. know>? um, <laughs> did your toughness make, make our other kids, our other sons, who they are? And did my femininity, you know, like, what are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> yeah. And as soon as he said it out loud, then he could kind of break it down and, and he was fine. But um, so sometimes I think that especially dads get, they get is this a reflection of me? And then they have to deal with their own stuff. Um, and once they get over that, they're better. Or um, parents sometimes just can't imagine their child's future. Yeah. Uh, and they're or they're afraid. Yeah, they're afraid. They they think well, you're make you're going to make your own life so hard for yourself, and yeah. and I won't be there to protect you all the time. And and do you have any idea how prejudiced people are going to be against you? Yeah. And all of that all of that comes from love, mm -hmm. you know, all of it comes from love. And so I understand that. And I think that one of the things that helps there is when we talk to adult trans people, Nick Kreiger has a great quote, and I probably am not going to be able to find it off the top of my head. So forgive me, I'm paraphrasing, but it meant the world to me. Nick has a book, Nina Here Nor There, about his transition. And I asked him parenting advice, like, how do you wish you'd been parented? And he said, I wish people hadn't told me over and over, like, how hard my life was going to be, but instead, how amazing this journey would be mm. and how would, he would be getting all of these gifts and that his compassion would expand, that his gratitude yeah. for being alive would be huge. And so I really think that just because parents have never lived that journey, they can't see all the good stuff. They can imagine the bad stuff, the fear-based mm -hmm. fear stuff. And it's true. They, you do have to be careful in raising a trans kid. There are risks, but also, you know, to tell them, wow, you're on a journey that's going to be amazing and you're going to understand things and see things and live a life that we can only glimpse. And so it's really important to frame, to remind parents that and parents who've been through it a little bit can help. But wow, this is going to open up your heart. It's going to break down doors for you. You're going to be such a more, uh, you're going to live your life so much more fully. And 
and, and you're going to think about authenticity, you know, are you living an authentic life? You know, well, you're living next to somebody who's work, who's doing, taking great risks to live authentically. Are, what, what risks are you willing to take for that reward? Um, so I think there's a lot in there uh, to reframe for parents. That is beautiful. I don't think I can top that. Carolyn Hayes, <laughs> thank you so much for your book, A Girlhood Letter to My Transgender Daughter, which I hope everyone reads. And thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. Mm, that's Carolyn Hayes. Wow. The book is an incredible read. Highly recommended. Okay. My parenting manifesto is pretty simple. It's very tempting to have ideas like, I want my kids to be independent, so I'll teach them how to cook and do laundry, or healthy body, healthy mind, I'm planning to start them early in sports, or at least make sure they get off the couch and exercise. Or music and art are essential, so I'll have them take violin lessons on Tuesdays and painting lessons on Saturday mornings. But you soon learn, as a parent, that parents who try to measure and assess their children or their own Parenting are doomed to the vagaries of children and who they are and what truly appeals to them. So instead of saying, well, my son will be a champion tennis player because I'm putting a racket in his crib and I'll send him to the academy when he's three, you end up saying, well, what are his passions and can I help him find them? And what does that mean for us now and what does it mean for us in the long run? Maybe his Passion identifies itself early, and, and maybe it's an expensive one for the family to support. Or maybe it comes late. Maybe it involves you as a parent a lot, and maybe you just need to get out of the way. It's all different for every child, for every family. But here are a few things that I think are worth keeping in mind. If you are a new parent or about to be one, this is my recommended baseline, the core the heart of your relationship with your child. It's what has sustained me for the last 18 years. Six simple ideas. Manifesto for a parent. One, I want my child to be happy. Two, I want my child to feel free to be whomever he or she is. Three, I want my child to know that I love him or her no matter what. Four, I want to love my child no matter what. Five, I want my child to be his or her best self. And six, I want to be the best version of myself for my child. Pretty simple, right? And then for someone who is outside of that parent-child relationship, there is just one corollary idea. As an outside observer, one, if a parent is doing the above six things in good faith, I want to support that parent. That's it, people. That's all we have to do. Let's try to do it. Now, is this literature? Yes, for two reasons. First, Carolyn's book is literature. It's a letter to her daughter, told beautifully, direct and honest and humorous and wise. But also, as I said, this is all about empathy, which is literature's turf. That's where literature takes over. And when empathy is in short supply, we fans of literature need to up our game. Empathy is not just something to gain from reading books. It's a skill we need to apply in life as well. Oh, 
Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, our potpourri, the lambs, Carolyn Hayes, and some thoughts from your humble podcaster. My thanks to Carolyn Hayes for being here. All best wishes to her and her family as they continue their journey. We have a scientist here next week who's going to help us with a pair of books from the 60s, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and the Autobiography of Malcolm X. And then we will have a Victorian ghost story by a woman who some say is as good a writer as Dickens. A guest we have coming soon says that, in fact, or maybe she even says that she's better. That caught my attention. So I looked her up. She wrote several ghost stories in addition to some very popular novels, which makes her perfect for this Halloween month. October is the best month, isn't it? The best month of the year. And then I think we'll finish our look at Percy Bysshe Shelley with his mature years and some of the finest poems ever written in English with Flaubert peeking right around the corner. (laughs) He's hiding there. He's hiding there, dipping his little head out, (laughs) seeing if we're coming for him yet. Well, we are. Gus, we will see you soon. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.